If you'd like to turn to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. I'll actually take two, two readings today. So 1 Thessalonians, and I'll also ask us to, act, to, to read Acts 17. But let me start with 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Please, turn with me again, if you will, to Act 17, verses 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is a Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, Taking some wicked men of the rubble, they formed them all, set, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Normally at Grace Point Church we would say, this is the word of the Lord. Indeed, uh, thanks be to God. It's a great joy to, to be here among you today. And if you're wondering what um, I'm going to say over the next few minutes, 25 or so, the big idea is that a gospel-centered church is known for its steadfast faith in Jesus, for its labor of love, 
before its unwavering hope uh, for Jesus' return. If that's a bit of a mouthful, you could then say a gospel-centered church is marked by uh, faith, love, and hope. I think that's a lot easier to remember. But a gospel-centered church um, is marked by um, faith, of course, in Jesus, love for the Lord and, of course, for his people, and hope, especially hope, uh, for Jesus' return. What are you known for? Interesting question to ask you as an individual, to ask ourselves this morning, but also to ask ourselves as a church family that gathers here every Sunday morning, or that is actually constituted as Modern Road Church. What are you known for? I know that's a tricky subject to bring up, the whole area of reputation, partly because reputation is not something that we actually go out to look for and so acquire and imagine that this is what I am known for. It would be very difficult to tell anyone what you are famous for because often um, that's not something we would comfortably want to talk about. And perhaps also because there isn't much anyway to, uh, um, to, to say or to say that we, we are known for this or the other. Indeed, um, Maybe uh, in wanting to be like our Lord, we might want to make ourselves to be of no reputation. Maybe there is a good reason for that. Yet the truth of the matter is that there is always something that we would be known for, or that we are actually known for, whether that be a good thing or a bad thing. And I think in all Christian history, it is right to say that reputation really matters. In the pages of scripture, we see churches that are actually commended for their good reputation, but we also see communities of believers that are actually rebuked for their ill reputation. So reputation really matters. In fact, in calling elders and the leaders of a local church into office, really one of the qualifications is that they ought to be those who are above reproach, that they are well spoken of. You ought to be people of good reputation. It's my great joy to be part um, of us here this morning and to come to this city by the name Oxford. And Oxford has a reputation. It is known for its famous university, the history going hundreds of years back when the university was founded. And certainly, of course, the spires that... Uh, dot the city. I still remember when I first visited Oxford in 2006 as an apprentice uh, over away in Reading and going up the Oxford story and greatly delighting in this amazing history of this city. I could see and admire the uh, long heritage of scholarship and of uh, saints who have stood for the gospel but also the welcoming nature of this very multicultural city. So Oxford is certainly known for many things, and I don't think I, I can barely cover half of it. But like cities and individuals, churches also have a character. They are known for certain traits. 
Now in the passage that we are looking at today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, we come across a church, um, and a letter is written to them uh, by Paul, together with his um, two friends, Silvanus and Timothy. This is a church that um, um, the Lord had used them in its uh, early days of planting, and now he is writing to them a letter years later, uh, expressing gratitude, but also instructing them in a number of or a number of uh, ways. As we read through Acts chapter 17, which I read just for background to build up uh, into what we are actually going to uh, to do today, really. We, we get an insight that Paul, together with his two friends, had visited this um, town of Thessalonica. They had stayed there for barely three weeks, only about three suburbs, and they had been hosted in the home of a man who is called Jason. What we also heard is that they went out from there, from Jason's house, I presume, and they would go into the synagogue, and they would be telling everybody the good news of Jesus Christ. And as a result of this preaching, many had come to faith. Also, we read in Acts chapter 17, many had come to believe, had been persuaded, and they followed Paul and Cyrus. We also told that many Gentiles also came to faith, and not a few of the leading women in this particular city. So as a result of that, then, a church is founded. So now... Um, Years later, Paul is writing to them, especially because he had heard from Timothy uh, a message from them, and he's now writing to them. And as he is writing, he's going to talk about their reputation. He's also going to give thanks because of them. And so that's what we are going to see today. What is Paul being grateful for, for the church among the Thessalonians, and what was their reputation? What we're going to see, really, are these three things that Paul is grateful to God for. This is their love, their faith, their love, and their hope. Now, all those um, aspects are actually in verse 3. Come with me again to verse 3, and then they are explained further in the following verses. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to see those three um, uh, aspects for which Paul is grateful for, these elements of their reputation, and um, see how might that apply to us in MRC today. The first one, we see Paul is grateful to God because of the Thessalonians' work of faith. Other translations render that as because of your work produced by faith. Um, others would put it because of the work that is demonstrated in your faith. And Paul is very grateful to God because of that. You might ask, you know, where do we see that? Is there real evidence that actually there was a work that was actually produced by faith, or there was real work there that is actually inspired by faith in God? I think the first thing that you notice is that Paul immediately goes on to talk about um, the nature of their faith as 
in faith as those who had been chosen by God. In other words, there was evidence of faith living in them because God had worked in them to build this faith, that is this belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, he says, chosen by him. You know, that is, you have been loved by God. He has chosen you. And because of that, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the spirit with full conviction. You see that in verse 4. Because God had already chosen them, he had uh, softened their hearts to believe the gospel, and the word of God came to them powerfully, and they actually also believed it. It came with great conviction. In fact, he's going to say elsewhere in verse 6 that um, you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the word. The faith that had been built in them really opened them up to properly receive the gospel. Staying with that again, he says in chapter 2, verse 13, if I can just cross-refer to that, he says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. This is the work of faith. And indeed, it is God beneath their believing and confession, working in their hearts, creating a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ in them. How do you see that? If there truly has been a faith built among a people of God, how would you know that? And yet, perhaps it's perhaps something in the heart, or maybe a confession, and maybe he has not listened to a confession of their lips. Well, the only way you know that there is a real faith in a person is actually because of then what do they do with that faith. Now, if you come with me then to verse 9, you see the impact or the result of this faith that was in them being demonstrated by, verse 9, um, it says, For they themselves reporting concerning as the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God. Faith in Jesus had meant that they turned around away from idols that they would have been worshipping before and now they have their faith in the living God. They turned away from serving idols to actually serving the true and the living God. That's what faith does in us. It's not just that we believe and then we just carry on living the way we were before, but actually faith is bathed in us by the work of God, you know, you love by God, chosen by him, and then we hear the gospel and receive it, not as the words of men, but actually ask the word of God, and as that faith is built in us, then we turn away from idols to worship the living God. That's the evidence of it. We have turned away. We have repented, as it were. We have moved away from what was we were fascinated with or what we were paying all our time and resources towards. And now we have become those who worship the true and the living God. 
brothers and sisters, how might we apply this truth today? Like Thessalonians, I would that we were known as those who have been chosen by God, as those who have been loved by God. And I would that we would be those who have an evidence of faith in us because we have turned away from idols and we are worshipping the true and the living God. Our hearts, St. Calvin, are idol factories. They generate all types of idols all the time. But the evidence of our love for the Lord and his love for us, the evidence of us having received the word, not as the words of men, but actually as what it is, the word of God, will be in our turning away from the idols of our times and actually towards a worship that is true and sincere of the living God. I wonder whether we are known more for our idols and our idolatry or rather for our worship of the true God. I wonder whether we are known more for the pet things that we love or for our true love for the Lord. I wonder whether I am perhaps known by those who are perhaps closer to me for my ministry and maybe less for my love for the Lord. And I start rebuked for that. People might put you know, something to my name, pastor. Could have a reputation of being this person who is involved in this project and maybe not known for my godliness or for my having turned and repented and turned away from idols to worship the true and the living God. May the Lord indeed help you and I to turn around. But the second thing then that Paul is thankful to God for, for the church among the Thessalonians, is because of their labor of love. Look down in verse 3 again, just to reiterate it, is that um, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love. That's what it says, labor of love. A labor of love is an expression that would be used quite commonly to mean loving against all odds or loving even when it is difficult. And how do we see that? Is there any proof or any evidence that truly these Thessalonians were loving against all odds? I think when we go back to um, Acts chapter 17, we see a true reception of the believers but also opposition from the city authorities and from the Jews that were opposed to the gospel. And the result of that was, of course, because of all this opposition, is that there is an uproar in the city. These men who have turned the world upside down have also come here, and they are teaching there is another Lord except Caesar. And of course, then this leads to uh, some arrests, and there will even be... Um, you know, boards that have to be paid to release uh, Paul and his traveling companions. Within the passage itself, we see that pain and suffering was not just for the apostles, 
But even the Thessalonians themselves indeed followed in that very pattern of pain and suffering for the sake of the name. Look at verse 6. Paul says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. We received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You received the word in much affliction with a lot of pain and struggle. And you became imitators. You also followed in that very example of the apostles and also of the Lord Jesus Christ in pain and suffering so that you became an example in your entire area. You became an example for all believers as a model of those whose example should be followed. It's a labor of love. Brothers and sisters, dare I say that maybe less and less we might be fashioning a Christianity that is alien to Scripture, that is very different from the model of the apostles and of our Lord Jesus Christ when we seek to insulate ourselves from any pain and any difficulty. I think the um, heritage of believers those who've gone before us has been one of the narrow way, the path that is not taken by many. But increasingly we see sort of Christians moving towards and wanting the ease of life and perhaps the comforts um, of this world. Some have said either there is too much worldliness within the church Church is so infiltrated by worldliness, you can hardly tell a Christian from a worldly person. Because they go to the same events, they perhaps participate in the same things. It doesn't look as if one is from a different kingdom. I think the forebears of Christianity in this country, people like John Banyan, would be shocked perhaps if they look at Christianity today in Britain. May the Lord indeed help us to care for it. And I'm not saying that we go out looking for pain and suffering. But actually to love the Lord and his people even when it hurts. To go beyond the casual and perhaps the token and the simple. But actually to sacrificially go the distance for the sake of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm so grateful for the kind of partnership that we have here. And I would that we were also able to do more and more. And I pray that that candle of mission partnership would also continue um, in Africa. Where we now realize that the responsibility and the task of global mission is very much now increasingly coming down on our shoulders. Would we pass on a heritage of sacrificial love uh, to others and to go the distance for their sake? Or are we likely to build castles and to build kingdoms and walls for our own security? The Thessalonian example is one 
of following in the example of the apostles and of our Lord Jesus Christ in suffering. You receive the word with much affliction. Church family here at MRC, what are you known for? I pray that we would be known that we are following Jesus and following those, the example of those who, faithful are saints who have gone ahead of us, who felt that it was their joy and their delight not only to serve the Lord, but also to suffer for the sake of his name. But lastly, what were the Thessalonians known for? Well, Paul shows us that it is their steadfastness of hope. Verse 3 again, if I can keep your eyes on the text again, it says, remembering before God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, in steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Please, dear brothers and sisters, carry dawn in anticipation of the Lord's return. Many have said that perhaps the Thessalonian problem was they expected the Lord to return very quickly. They were a little concerned about those who have died, what will happen to them if the Lord returns, might they see the Lord? Because to the Thessalonians, the Lord was returning in their lifetime. And maybe it's not just the Thessalonians. I think for most of the early church, they expected that the Lord will return in their lifetime. And I know many have critiqued that and said, you know, perhaps that was um, you know, very, uh, maybe not, not very good or very right of them to have thought that the Lord would return. But it's because as we are reading that in hindsight, knowing perhaps um, 2,000 years later, the Lord has not yet returned in person. But these indeed are the last days from Pentecost until when the Lord returns. The Lord will return and it is a hope of the believer. And I think the Thessalonians and together with the early church, we are right to expect the Lord's return to be imminent and to be soon. Unfortunately, it seems to have escaped many of us. We now live as if the Lord will never return. We just carry on um, living and perhaps even embracing a kind of a culture of Christianity as if, you know, this, this is just for us for now, but maybe I don't know about that. the Thessalonians, there was a steadfast hope in the Lord's return. And how do you know that? What's the evidence that actually they lived as if the Lord would return in their lifetime? It is because they continued to tell others about Jesus. Look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The word of God continued to spring forth from among the Thessalonians into the wider regions. They continued to proclaim the message. I think when we hear the Lord is returning, it doesn't mean like they did in Shakahora, which is an area south of our country near the coast where 
So many people then have taken their lives. It's always like a doomsday message. The Lord is returning. Okay, let's go and proclaim the gospel. That's the response. When we hear the Lord is coming, he doesn't, no, 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 let's sell our property. Oh no, let's me resign from my job. That's not what we ought to be doing. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul does actually rebuke some who might have had such kind of an attitude. The right response to the uh, news that the Lord is returning is actually, let's tell others about him. Let's share the gospel. Let's love one another. Let's love the Lord truly. Indeed, mission or missions become super urgent and super important the moment we realize the Lord is returning. How do we know a church that is perhaps not bothered about the Lord's return or that doesn't have a steadfastness of hope in the Lord's return? They have no interest whatsoever in reaching their neighborhood. They're just quite happy and comfortable to have their little community it's likely to be quite insular, very inside looking. It doesn't seek to serve the neighbor, the neighborhood, or even further afield in the regions beyond. It's very encouraged as we were walking, walking through these doors, um, or through the gate, and being reminded um, that actually the, um, the reason that um, you know, you, you've, you've named it the, the way you have is because they can be welcoming to others in the neighborhood who might just want to walk in, ask a question, or even be part of a worship service. If we really have a steadfastness of hope in the Lord's return, then gospel proclamation to children, to the elderly, loving our neighbor, pointing others to Jesus, loving those who have come to seek refuge among you, like I see already you are doing, becomes important commitments that we would make as a church family. These dear brothers were known for their eager anticipation, the Lord will come. Did the Lord will return. We will hear him, the sound of an archangel, the voice of a trumpet. And we who are still alive will be caught up in the air. That's what Paul will say later on. Those who are dead in Christ will rise up fast and we will be with him forever. Encourage each other with these truths, Paul will say later on in the book. How I would that we would be so caught up with the idea of Jesus' return because then other things that we think are so important actually shrink into insignificance when we are caught up with the urgency and the importance of the Lord's return I think we don't pay enough attention to the truth that indeed the Lord, whom the angel said to the disciples, that you have seen him go, will suddenly return. I think every time this subject is brought up, many start to argue. Oh, am I premillennial? Am I what this or the other? When is he going to come? Are we going to be caught up? Is there going to be rapture? I don't think that's what really matters. Might not know the exact details of it. What we need to be aware of is that the Lord said he will come. Just like he came in the first time. It took hundreds of years from when the prophet spoke of his coming. He said he will come. 
And he will come, brothers and sisters. And because he will come, how about the millions of people who are yet to hear? We will go and tell them. We will encourage and support those who are on the frontiers of mission. We will pray for those who are laboring to make others know Jesus. We will go out into our neighborhood and into the streets and the highways and tell others about Jesus. The result of that, as we see in verse 10, is that they continue to wait, we are told, for Jesus. Is what he says in verse 10. Um, we had the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. How might we apply this truth? I think I have already alluded to that. Is that the way we show that we are eagerly anticipating for Jesus' coming is by keeping on gospeling. We keep on gospeling, telling others about Jesus, serving those that um, are near us with the gospel, serving those who are needy, those who need our love and our attention, supporting those that the Lord has brought our way, that Jesus' name may continue to be known. Let me pray for us. I've drawn from 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and I'll close. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will cause you as faithful we surely do it. Heavenly Father, we long to be a church that is centered around the gospel. Did we long to be those who are known for our work of faith, for the fruit of faith being evident in us, as those who have turned away from idols and those who worship the true and the living God. Please help us, Lord, to walk away from idols of our times and of our culture and help us, Lord, to worship you in truth and in the spirit. Receive your word as for what it truly is, indeed, your word, with full conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Heavenly Father, please help us to labor in love, even when it costs us, even when it is difficult, even when it costs us our, um, our name, even when it costs us um, a lot in our neighborhood. Help us to love sacrificially. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray, would you please help us to have an unwavering hope in Jesus' return. Help us, Lord, to not take in the words of the naysayers. When will the Lord return? But help us, Lord, to be those who are persuaded and convicted of this truth, that Jesus is coming. And because of that, to want to spread his gospel it's the most urgent and most important message to the watching world. And so we ask for your grace, for your, for your help in all these things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.